Well, good morning again. Hope you're doing well this morning. We are almost done with 1 Corinthians. When did we start? It was like October? September. We're almost done. We're almost done. Uh, This morning, I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, which Bill handled really, really well in its fullness back in January. So I'm going to refer you to that sermon if you're looking for a big picture of 1 Corinthians 15. But I'm going to be in a shorter portion of it this morning and focusing on something pretty specific. As we finish up in 1 Corinthians, I would encourage you to do something on your own. Read 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians has a little bit of a different tone, but there are a lot of the same themes going on. And also, you see how the Corinthian church has been affected by Paul's first, and it seems, second letter that came to them in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So I'd encourage you to read 2 Corinthians on your own and uh, see how the Lord puts that together for you. In 2 Corinthians 6, 11, 13, though, Paul says something interesting. Let me just read it to you. He says this. He's talking to the Corinthians. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. You're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians in this second letter to widen their hearts to Paul's ministry and ultimately to widen their hearts to God himself. Jonathan Edwards, in his treatise on religious affections, said many wise things, but one of them was this. The feet of the soul are the affections. That which draws your heart, that which draws my heart, will affect my soul, will affect your soul. James K.A. Smith says this, you are what you love. You are what you love. So I would ask you this morning, where are your affections? Where are your affections? What do you love? Who do you love? Even though 2 Corinthians kind of has a, definitely has a more affectionate tone than 1 Corinthians, at the end of the letter, Paul still says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's an instruction to us as well. In order to examine whether or not we are in the faith, we must examine our hearts. We must examine where our affections lie. And this morning, I want to zero in on one particular category of our affections, of our love, and that is friends. Friends. So if you would, please turn to second, or 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 29 through 34, if you haven't already. 1 Corinthians 15 starts off with Paul challenging the Corinthians. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, this is in verse 1, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast 
to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is a similar tone to what he then later on uses in 2 Corinthians 13. He is challenging them to take a good look in the faith mirror and see if they truly are in the faith. And he says here, it's by continuing to hold fast to the word of the gospel that he had preached to them, unless you believed in vain. See, earlier on in 1 Corinthians, Paul had painted with a broad brush that he continues to paint as he addresses the church. He addresses them as saints. They've received the gospel as the holy people of God. He, he doesn't split hairs. He doesn't try to define who is of Christ and who is not of Christ. But having gone through an entire letter where there's a lot of instruction, he then comes to this chapter in 15 and he says, listen, I got to tell you one last thing. You need to hold fast to the gospel. And if not, you have believed in vain. How does he then set up this test for understanding whether or not they have believed in vain? One single point. Whether or not they believe in the resurrection. Whether or not they believe in the resurrection. So you have here in 1 Corinthians 15, the single most glorious chapter on the resurrection of Christ and of the church in the entire Bible. But it's actually a chapter of correction. It's a chapter of challenge. It's a chapter of examination. So we're going to focus in on a short portion of it in 29 through 34. And this put, puts legs on what is going on in the Corinthian church in terms of their disbelief in the resurrection. And it also includes something, concludes something that I think is interesting that Paul is doing kind of behind the scenes, but it's especially contextualized for Corinth. And I would say to us as we consider friendship and affections, this thematic thread of eating and drinking. He brings it up most explicitly in chapter 9, and it continues all the way through this part of chapter 15. You know, as we kind of are hopefully coming out of COVID, it's interesting to kind of look back and see what were some of the, the telltale signs of it, and what were some of the effects of it. And kind of interesting that with COVID, many people lost their sense of taste. Joey was telling us this last Tuesday night at Sons and Brothers that um, he thinks that he may have, co have had COVID way back in March, even though his doctor just diagnosed him with a sinus infection. Because this one night, Jackie had made some hibaritos, the, the Puerto Rican fried banana sandwich. And he ate it, and he couldn't taste it. He couldn't taste it. So he's like, I'm looking back then, I'm thinking, did I have COVID back then? Well, some people have had that effect, others haven't. But one thing that we've all experienced is the separation of relationships. This social distancing that has actually caused distance between friends. And that, that's the thing. Friendship has so much to do with eating and drinking. And I think that's where Paul is headed here in 1 Corinthians 15. I would hope this morning that we would have a renewed taste 
for the resurrection. A renewed taste for the God of the resurrection and see that here in this text. But let me ask you this. As you look back over your life, what have your friendships been like? Think in the past. If you're like me, when you were in a certain place or at a certain time, it was like your friendships, and I would even expand that maybe to boyfriend or girlfriend, were like the center of your universe. What are my friends doing on Friday night? We didn't have social media back when I was in high school, so it was really we got to figure out what to do on Friday night, and we're not just going to be texting each other or IME each other or whatever kids do these days. We were going to try to be in the same place and try to figure something out, and most Friday nights were actually pretty boring. But how did your friends influence you? Chances are, if you look back at your life and you see certain periods of great growth spiritually, you had some good friends surrounding you. Chances are, if you look back and you had times where you were flatlined or living in foolishness, you were surrounding yourselves with foolish friends. Friends impact us. They affect us in that way. And so I bring that forward to today. Who are your friends this morning? Who are those who influence you? Because that's what friends do. They influence us. Who are your friends this morning? Who do you think about? Who's the center of your world? Who have captured your friendship affections? Well, as we move towards handling that more towards the end of this section of verses... I want to talk a bit about the resurrection that will then help us understand this friendship dynamic. As we desire to have this renewed taste for the resurrection, I want to remind us that we have resurrection in our flesh. And I'm not saying we have resurrection of the flesh. That will happen. Resurrection bodies. But I want to, I want to keep it in terms of what we're feeling, what actually every person feels even now. Look at verse 29. Paul has just been addressing kind of an apologetic of why the resurrection is true. And he says to the Corinthians, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? A good question for you to ask would be, what does it mean that they were baptizing on behalf of the dead? And I would say that's a very good question because there are over 200 answers that have been offered to that question in Christian scholarship. So I'm just going to give you the shrug. Don't know. It could have been that Christians were being baptized, Christians who were alive were being baptized in some extra biblical sense for the sake of those maybe in their family that had passed on before. And they were hoping to bring them into the resurrection because they did not believe, their family members did not believe before they passed. It could be that. Again, maybe that was one of the 200 plus. Or it could be that there was just a cultural thing that was going on and that 
Um, there was even something in the idolatrous culture where people would undergo a baptism of sorts to bring one of their dead loved ones into a place of harmony or righteousness or acceptance by a certain deity. We don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that the Corinthians understood this as a cultural norm. They understood it as something that was happening. And so Paul used what their understanding was to ask this question. Well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why are people baptized on behalf of the dead? It doesn't make sense. If there's no life after death, then why go through something in this life for the sake of those who have passed on? So he's questioning their disbelief in the resurrection, which makes me think in today's culture and today's understanding of death and the afterlife, do we see this? Oh, sure we do. When someone dies, what is always said at the wake? Oh, we'll, we'll see him again. She's in a better place. Oh, he's with grandma now. There's this just explicit understanding that when someone dies, there is a life after death, and that that person somehow merits to be in the good place, and they're meeting everyone else that has already passed in that good place as well. How about in culture? Well, maybe you've seen WandaVision. I won't offer any spoilers, but it's kind of the most recent display of a cultural desire for life after death. That death brings great loss, and there's a hope for a resurrection of some sort after that loss. There was a survey done in 2014, and incredibly, 80% of Americans believe in life after death. Four out of every five. That same survey said that belief in God, belief in the authority of the Bible, people self-identifying as Christians, those were going down. But belief in an afterlife had risen. Back in 1974, that percentage was only 72%. People in our culture are believing that there is something after death. And you know, we shouldn't be surprised. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts. So that we see, so if we see people saying, well, now he's with grandma, or if we see in a movie or a television show or in a, in a conversation that people are hoping for something after death, it's not surprising. If that's part of the Imago Dei, being made in God's image that we are longing for eternity, it's going to show up even among those who don't know Christ. So we feel the resurrection, whether you're a Christian or not, we feel the resurrection in our flesh, in our bones. It's part of who we are, part of who we were created to be. We were created for eternity. But how about the resurrection in our faith? Look at verses 31 and 32. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, 
I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul gets super personal. He says, listen, you might see the resurrection in your flesh, you might see it in your culture. I see it every day. I walk in it every day because I die every day. That is the intensity of my ministry. I'm in danger every hour for the sake of you, church, and for the sake of Christ. Why would he be so animated to die every day, to be in danger every hour? Why such compulsion for the gospel? Well, let's look back at 15, verse 3. I'm just going to read this section, but it's, it's so rich, it should also be what compels us. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in, according with the, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, here are these resurrection deniers here, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. How could Paul be so compelled to die every day for the sake of the gospel? Boom, right there. He understands that the resurrection has changed everything. It has changed his whole understanding of the timeline of eternity. And that God in his grace has called him into his own family. That when everything is perfectly ordered at the end of all things, that God may be all in all, he is going to be part of it. He realizes that just as Christ was raised, he will also be raised. And everyone who believes will also be raised. So it is with great joy and passion and zeal that he says, yes, I die every day. Yes, I am in danger every hour because the gospel is worth it. I have to tell people about the resurrection. I witnessed it. Even as a man unborn, I witnessed it. Jesus, the risen one, appeared to me. He told me, I am sending you to be a witness to the nations for my sake. Why is he so compelled? Because the call of God upon his life. The call to salvation and the call to be a witness. He knew that the ultimate order was coming and he could taste that day. If you read through the book of Acts, the the single most specific identifier that the people used of themselves, the people who were Christians used of themselves, was witnesses. Specifically, witnesses of the resurrection. After you, read, after you read 2 Corinthians, go to the book of Acts and check it out. We are witnesses, we are witnesses, we are witnesses. Jesus himself said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, we are meant to be witnesses to the resurrection. And you might say, but I haven't seen Jesus risen from the dead. You haven't? The revealed word of God reveals Jesus risen from the dead. Paul understands that we have not seen and the Corinthians had not seen Jesus as he had or the other apostles had. So he says, listen, I'm zealous about this. I die every day on your behalf for your sakes because I want you to know he is alive. And that changes He also knows that if he dies, he doesn't actually die. Death has already been defeated by the risen king. And he knows to live, to continue to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He looks forward to offering his life as a sacrifice poured out for the sake of Christ. 
and for the sake of his church. Our faith, our faith, the resurrection in our faith is absolutely necessary. The resurrection is absolutely necessary because if the resurrection was not true, then Jesus is still dead. The apostles have misrepresented God as a God of resurrection, and instead, God is a God who is lost to death, meaning the Bible is then false. So if we are witnesses, if we have been saved from death into life, would we consider, do we die every day? Your answer and mine is probably no. I don't die every day. There are many, many things actually that I live for that I would not want to die every day for. Or that I would, maybe, I'll say that, I'll say that differently. Maybe there are things that you say, I'm living for this. This is what my heart has been set upon. And I don't know if I could die every day for the sake of God, the gospel. I don't know if I could risk. I don't know if it's worth that much to me. Jesus said, he who lives to keep his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. Are we walking in the resurrection today? Are we willing to risk maybe not dying every day, but dying to ourselves every day? Say, Lord, help me to see who I am through your view and not through my own. I will risk, I will die, I will, I will take the resurrection reality as compelling. Holy Spirit, help us. If you look at the end of verse 13, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is, this is a, a phrase that we hear in our culture even today. It's interesting because it's originally an Old Testament quote. In Isaiah twenty-two thirteen, earlier in that chapter, God is saying, Jerusalem, I'm calling you to repent. There is judgment coming. And instead, Jerusalem responds and says, well, okay, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. An utter, re an utter rejection of repentance. A worldview that is, that is focused on today, that is focused on don't worry about tomorrow, I will get drunk today for the sake of today. There's nothing beyond it. You know, at the end of Acts, Paul as a Pharisee is put on trial, at this point a Christian Pharisee, but he's, he's put on trial by the Sadducees. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. And Paul knew that this was the crux of his argument, the crux of what needed to be why they were attacking him. Let's put it that way. And he was saying, listen, the resurrection is why I'm on trial today. But Christ has been raised. Is there not an empty tomb? 
the resurrection compelled him to die every day. It compelled him to have a a view of, of life that went beyond let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And he has been calling the Corinthian church throughout 1 Corinthians to repentance. To repentance, which is then where we move to resurrection in our friendships. Look at verses 33 and 34, 1 Corinthians 15. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Again, he's speaking to the church and telling them, don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That slogan there comes from a playwright, Meander, who, I'm sorry, Menander, who wrote his dramas about 300 years before Paul was writing to the Corinthians. This would have been a well-known slogan or um, just an under, a thing that kind of people just threw around. Uh, some similar things today might be um, live your truth. Do you. I know Drake has released a couple more albums since then, but YOLO. All right? These are things that, that seep into our culture and identify where our culture's affections actually are. Well, Menander actually said something that Paul uses here for the sake of teaching and correcting. Bad company ruins good morals. Who was this bad company within the church? Well, they were resurrection deniers. People that were calling themselves Christians, but they denied the resurrection. And so, without that true hope, they were then doing whatever they wanted to do and saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. All of a sudden, that brings clarity to the whole letter to the Corinthians. If the resurrection is foundational to the church and these people were denying the resurrection, all of a sudden, there is no foundation for their faith And others who are listening to them and beginning to doubt the resurrection themselves are then also beginning to waver. Well, if their worldview is a non-resurrection, hopeless, nihilistic understanding of the world, then obviously, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's nothing else to do. This bad company was ruining the church. It was ruining the church. Listen to this skeptical question in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul just straight up calls them foolish. Foolish person. Walking in immaturity, walking in in only looking at today is foolishness. It is Jerusalem saying, no, you know what, God? We know you're the God of the covenant and everything. Abraham is our father. But we're not going to listen to your word. 
We're going to do whatever we want today because tomorrow we die. Repentance, too costly. Bad company ruins good morals. And the influence of the resurrection deniers was infecting the true believers and the church at Corinth. As I was studying this this week, I, I had a note that I written to myself a few years ago, and I'll just read it to you. Living for today is the logical worldview of a reality without resurrection. So too, living in such a way with those who deny the resurrection corrupts the believer's resurrection assurance. That's why I'm bringing friendship into this. Because each of us as individual believers must judge and consider who is influencing us. Who are our friends? Because those friends are either stunting your maturity or they're increasing your maturity. They're good for your soul. You think Paul is barking up the wrong tree here? He's not. He wants them to understand their immaturity too. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 1? He said, listen, I can't talk to you as mature people. You're infants. You're infants. You need milk and not food. You can't handle mature food. To the mature, I speak wisdom. But you guys, I'm going to spend the rest of this letter just kind of like giving it to you a little bit at a time so you don't spit it up, helping understand, helping you to understand your infants. Well, it makes sense that they were infants if they were, if they were questioning the main thing that was undergirding the church, the resurrection. They were fools, and they were making others foolish with them. Just listen to these verses, because, again, this is where he's, he's bringing together this eat and drink idea. He started there in 3.1, talking about not able to eat, so you're only having to drink. Then in 1 Corinthians 9, 4, he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Paul, as an apostle, is saying, listen, I'm an apostle. I can do whatever I want. I'm free in Christ, but for your sake, I'm giving up myself. I'm giving up this right to eat and drink. A chapter later in 10, 4, he says, did not all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is going back to Israel in the wilderness. And Paul is saying, listen, there was this whole group of the covenant people that were following Christ. The rock was Christ. They drank from the spiritual rock. They drank from him. Yet what he goes on then to say is, do not be idolaters as some of them, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What he's setting up here is this reality that how we eat and drink may seem just like an everyday type thing. He's taking it higher than that. He's saying how we eat and drink matters. Who we eat and drink with matters. 
How we eat and drink matters. And he's saying for the people in Israel in the wilderness, they were all drinking of Christ, of the rock, but not all of them were of Christ. See, he's beginning to make this this division within the church for them to be able to consider whether or not they're in the faith by looking at one another and most importantly looking at themselves and saying, am I actually a Christian? Or am I just kind of walking with the covenant people while still being an idolater? Are my affections really in other places rather in Christ than in Christ himself? 1021, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In 11, he starts to talk about communion. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? In 1125, in the same way, now he's talking about the Last Supper, Jesus also took the cup this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's, it is, it's something that we drink. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here's, he, he's making this, this divide. You are either of the cup of Christ, drinking the spirit from the rock of Christ, or you are of the cup of demons. Drinking the cup of idolatry. And church, you need to look at yourselves. Corinth, which side are you on? It doesn't just mean because you're cool with people in the church that you are actually a Christian. Whoever eats, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Whoever, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. For what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's not letting them off the hook here. He wants them to take the understanding of the relationships within the church and who is influencing them in the church and outside of the church to see if they, as Bill said last week, are they more people of the word or are they more people of the world? You cannot drink of the cup of Christ and the cup of demons. So here's the question for us. Who are we eating and drinking with? Who do we chill with? Who do we listen to? Who influences us is critical to remaining sober to the resurrection. Look at verse 34. Wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. If we're drunk in the world, we will not be filled with the Spirit. If we're drunk in the world, then we will not walk in the reality that God is a God of resurrection. We will not look forward to us being raised as Christ was raised. 
this is a problem. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning. Those are parallels. When you're drunk, you're drunken stupor. And he's not even necessarily saying drunken like you just go and get drunk. He's saying spiritually drunk. You're drunk on the dregs of the world. You're just trying to fill yourself up. Wake up. Stop sinning. For if you do not, you prove that you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul's theology of eating and drinking brings up the question, do our friendships awake us to the resurrection or inebriate us and lull us into a YOLO slumber? Because here's the thing, eating and drinking is necessary. Friendships are necessary. But we must consider our friends, our influencers. So let's break this down a little bit because Paul speaks to this in Corinthians. If your friends profess to be Christians but are not living for the resurrection, they have no fear of God before them, they have no love for Christ, there is no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, let me say this, they are the worst kinds of friends. They're the worst kinds of friends. They claim eternity. They claim Christ. But there's no love for the God of eternity or Christ who died for them. Do you think I'm going too far in saying they're the worst kind of friends? Absolutely not. Because in 1 Corinthians 5.11, remember what Paul said? If someone claims to be a brother and yet they continue in sin, do not even eat with such a one. Have no fellowship with them. How about if they do not profess Christ? Well, then I would ask you, who's influencing who? They're surely proclaiming you only live once to you because that's all they know. That's all they know. Let me read to you a bit from uh, Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. He, he writes this. Never make an intimate friend of anyone who is not a friend of God. Now understand me. I do not speak of acquaintances. I do not mean that you ought to have nothing to do with any but true Christians. To take such a line is neither possible nor desirable in this world. To which Paul also mentions that in 1 Corinthians 5. I don't say to go out of the world and not to do business or anything else with people who aren't Christians. I'm telling you, be cautious of people who say they are Christians, but their lives show nothing of it. To take such a line is neither possible nor desirable in this world. Christianity requires no man to be uncourteous. But I do advise you to be very careful in your choice of friends. Do not open all your heart to a man merely because he is clever, agreeable, good-natured, high-spirited, 
kind, roots for the same sports teams, plays the same RPG, whatever it is. These, kind, these things are all very well in their way, but they are not everything. Never be satisfied with the friendship of anyone who will not be useful to your soul. Believe me, the importance of this advice cannot be overrated. There is no telling the harm that is done by associating with godless companions and friends. The devil has few better helps in ruining a man's soul. Grant him this help, and he cares little for all the armor with which you may be armed against him. Good education, early habits of morality, sermons, books, regular homes, letters of parents, all the devil knows well will avail you little if you cling to ungodly friends. You may resist many open temptations, refuse many plain snares, but once take up a bad companion, and the devil is content. Where's grace in all of this? There's no need for us to be uncourteous. How do we think with wisdom about friendships? If you read in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. There, for everyone who is a Christian, there's constitutionally something different about us. The Spirit has taken our hearts and made them alive. To unite ourselves with a friend, whether it be a, a close friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever that may be in there, to acquaint ourselves in such a way that we are intimately sharing our souls with them is an unbalanced equation. It's not even an equation. It doesn't equate. Because in Christ, we are different people. Paul says it himself also in 2 Corinthians 5. He's like, listen, before I was a Christian, I looked at Jesus. I don't know what to think of Jesus. He persecuted his followers for sure. But he says, but now that I know him, I don't regard him any longer in the flesh. I don't just look at where he was born or how he wasn't educated or what, what, what in this. It's like, no, now I see that Jesus is God incarnate, the one who came to live and to die and to rise again for sinners like me. And so I don't regard him anymore according to the flesh, and we don't, he says this, we don't regard anyone anymore according simply to the flesh. So it's, it's good to find out like what somebody's background is, where they go to school, where do they live, what do they do for a job, are they married, do they have kids, yada, yada, yada. Those are all good things. But when we look at people and consider whether or not they should be true friends, not just acquaintances, but true friends, we can't just regard them according to the flesh. Paul is urging us to understand we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Different, different, different than all of those who are not. That's a resurrection difference. It's a resurrection difference. No longer do worldly categories define whether or not someone should be a friend. 
the first, the first category to consider is whether or not they're a brother and sister. And you may say, well, how about those who aren't? How about if they do not profess Christ? Don't they need to know the gospel? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. But would the Spirit give us intentionality? Would he give us the zeal of Paul to risk in our faith that we are so overwhelmed by the wonder of the resurrection of Christ, the wonder of us being resurrected from the dead ourselves, and that we will one day be resurrected, that we would be compelled to be resurrection people to those who are our acquaintances and who we long for them to be our friends in Christ. Are we sharing the gospel with our friends or with our acquaintances? You may say, how? We could talk a lot about that. But let me try to just give you a, a simple answer to that using what we've already talked about today. If the Bible is true and eternity is set upon the hearts of every single person, then your friends and mine are longing for eternity in a way that they might not even be able to define. But if the survey is correct, four out of five of them would answer that question if you asked, do you believe in the afterlife? With a yes. So would we be courageous enough? Would, be, would we risk enough to just take the step over the line and say to an acquaintance who may actually be a very close friend of yours, do you believe in the afterlife? Do you believe that there's anything beyond the grave? And perhaps four of your five friends might say yes. Eternity is stamped on our hearts. So would we walk in faith and ask, do you believe in life after death? If the Bible is true, then God is also calling his family back together. Jesus died and rose again to redeem brothers and sisters for himself. So if the Bible is true, that is happening, and the Spirit is doing his work in making that happen. So if we would step over that line and risk the first question, would you then step over the line and say, I love Jesus. Jesus has something to say about life after death. Would you mind if I shared that with you? All of a sudden, you're working from a place of something they may have already been trying to figure out themselves. All of a sudden, you've taken a friendship or an acquaintance to another level of gospel seriousness. Gospel intentionality, grace, resurrection compelling you to share the resurrected Christ with those who are still dead in their sins. Could you be rejected? Of course. Yeah. Paul died every day. 
Is there one more question to ask in that conversation? There is. Jesus actually asked it himself. And if they would say, yeah, I'd love to hear about what Jesus says about life after death, take him to John 11. Read the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus, with his friends, both his disciples, along with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who he loved. And Jesus asks the most important question in the Bible. In John eleven twenty five. he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this? Because this Jesus is the one who has called us friends. He's the one who is faithful and true. He is present. He is speaking. He is listening. He gave himself as only a friend could and then is raising us all up together with him. He is the friend. So all of a sudden, when we put it all in this, all in this picture, then when Paul says, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, it then opens up this vast vista of how can we use our acquaintances, our friendship, our eating and drinking for his glory? Where the Lord gives us opportunities for hospitality, opportunities for conversations that point to our resurrected king. Because, this is the last drinking and, and eating verse that I'll quote, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. See, if the Bible is true and we have eternity stamped in our hearts, then the spirit is taking the initiative to, pour, to be poured out into the lives of those who hear the gospel and some will believe. Would the Lord so fill us with his spirit that we would be the ones to tell? We would be the ones to share. And would we do it together? Would we do it together? Would we understand our evangelistic mission as resurrected people to not just be an individual thing, but to be a corporate thing? When Jesus told his disciples, you're going to be fishers of men, he was not giving them a rod and a reel. He was saying, take your nets. Couldn't be handled by one guy. It was a group effort to draw them in as fishers of men. This is a corporate thing as we are resurrected friends together in our fellowship. We're going to pray about that in a minute. I'm going to invite you to pray according to some of these things that we've talked about today. If the Lord is stirring your heart for greater longing for the resurrection, a faith that lives for the resurrection, and to pray that we would be people that are friends with one another, who eat of Christ together, who drink of the Spirit with others who do as well, and that we would pray for those others to drink of the Spirit and be saved.
But before I do that, let me just make this one other encouragement. Um, it's hard only having 30 people in the sanctuary this morning. Um, we really miss you who are out there. And we need you, not just to fill seats, but we need you. You're part of the body if you are in Christ as well, and we miss you. I would ask you to consider returning. We have many seats available this morning. This morning there are three people sitting in the balcony, three we need to worship together. We need to fellowship together. We need to be brothers and sisters, friends together again. See, in a, in, a, in a body like this, one thing that I often hear is it's hard for me to trust other people. It's hard for me to, to develop deep friendships because people are always leaving. People are always leaving. And today in our, in our membership meeting, there's a long list of people that are leaving. But let's not sorrow, okay? Let's not sorrow in that. Instead, let's press into body life. Let's press into loving one another well. Let's press in to being together. Because here's the hope. Here's the hope. Even when friends move, there will be a day, because we are now eternal friends in Christ, that we will have an eternity for those friendships to flourish. To know one another in the perfection of relationship, in the new heaven and the new earth, worshiping Christ, where friendship will be beyond our wildest imagination. So we will say goodbye to people this afternoon in terms of them being part of our regular fellowship, but we will not despair. And for those of us who are still here, let's pray the Lord would bring more in. People the Spirit is being poured out to and they place their faith in Jesus Christ and he builds his church. He builds us as friends through the power of his gospel.